So how long? Maybe about a yearish. Yeah, good amount of time. Yeah. And you've been a Christian for how long? Um, most of my life. So I'm um, giving away your age. How long is that? <laughs> um, about, I, well, I am 24 years old. I, I, I couldn't <laughs> name a date when I became a Christian. So um, it would be like 20-ish years. Yeah. Um, and Johnny, you love Scripture. You love the Word of God, and we can see that about you. So. Um, why is the Word of God so, so life-changing for you? What has it done in your life? Um, good question. Um, are we, am I, um, Connor recently uh, interviewed our granddad, who was a vicar for um, 30 years, and, and asked him, what would be your one piece of advice? Um, what would be the one, one thing you would say to, to guys in our age bracket, or to Christians generally? And Grandad, Grandad answered with a very simple sentence, really. Don't forget the incomparable power of meeting the Lord every day. And, and he went on to say, it, it's not just reading the Bible and praying, it's, it's meeting the Lord every day. And, and I think that's, for me, the, the thing that actually, as Christians, we believe that Scripture is, is God-breathed and that it is the place where he speaks to us. Um, and that means that every day you have the privilege of coming and meeting with God. And it may not feel like a kind of emotional experience necessarily, but actually each day you have the, the privilege of coming before the real living words of God. Um, and so I think for me, the, in my life, the, the value of daily reading the Bible is probably one of the things that has most kind of grown my faith because you you come to know God's character and you come to see him more fully than perhaps you can if you're just hearing a, a sermon on a Sunday. Um, you come to things like the book of Hebrews, which I haven't heard that many sermon series on, but where which just has that like image of God as, as well, of us having the invitation into the throne room of the Lord. And, and each book has different little nuggets like that. And so that's why I think it's so important. Phenomenal. Um, and Johnny, what, what does that look like for you sort of on a daily basis? Like what do you do at a practical level? Um, I try and read. So for me, I, I'm someone who, my work is all on my phone. So I try and read the Bible before I turn in my phone on. But different people have different things. I try and kind of set aside half an hour, 40 minutes. Sometimes on the train, sometimes just sprawled out on my bed um, to do that. Um, and I think one of the things I found helpful was the awareness that different books of the Bible require, they're, they're, they're all quite different genres, and you shouldn't read it all the same. Um, like for me, the epistles, the, the letters of Paul, really came to life when I realised that if you, they're easiest to understand if you read the whole thing in one go, because they like, tend to only be like five pages. And then, then read it in smaller chunks, um, because otherwise you don't really understand the whole story. And in the same, I don't know. I think each book has different. You can read the Gospels in small chunks because it's just like a, a narrative story. Um, the Psalms are different, so you have like different. I don't know. Anyway, that's that's a couple of things that I found helpful. Great, thank you. So you're just finding daily reading and then the kind of bigger picture really sort of moves you forward. Wonderful, thank you. Can we give Johnny a round of applause?
And so, guys, let's take up the Word of God. If you'd like to, to pick up your Bibles, um, Tim is going to come and join us. And Father, we thank you for that eternal truth. That scripture is God breathed. In so many ways, by the power of the Spirit, you did not leave us as orphans, but you also gave us this book to know you and to change us. And so we just anoint him now. Give him a fresh focus and vision. And would you enliven our hearts for all that you want to say to us this evening. Amen. 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 Wonderful. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Lily. Uh, we're on page 1131. 1131 in the Green Bibles. If you're on your phone or some other device, then we're in 2 Timothy, Paul's second letter to Timothy. He's a kind of, Paul's a senior leader. He's training up Timothy. He's a leader in his own right. And we're just going to read this little bit in chapter 3. Uh, it's headed in the Bible I've got here, a final charge to Timothy, kind of words of uh, exhortation and endurance, culminating with uh, maybe for some of us some familiar words about scripture, which just means inspired writing, uh, spirit-inspired writing. So from verse 10 of chapter 3. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, Patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I guess my focus this evening um, will be around those last two verses there. Paul's declaration that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture, inspired writing, or, or the Bible, um, slightly misleading, we, we, uh, we have this book, singular, the Bible. Um, actually, it comes from the, the word we use, Bible, the English word, comes from biblios, uh, which means books. 
And that's more accurate. This is a, a little anthology. It's a mini library. It's 66 books, as Johnny just uh, alluded to. Uh, different styles, different genres, written at different times by different authors, but uh, all kind of collated together, Christians believe, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to form this, this collection, the Bible, uh, a, a, a collection of inspired writings where God speaks to us. I want to unpack that a bit this evening, hopefully deepen uh, our understanding of what that means and, and deepen our love for God as a result. Extraordinary books, over 44 million sold every year, uh, year on year. It's, it's, the, it's just a given on Desert Island Discs, if there are any Radio 4 fans out there. Uh, you're sent away in a, celebrities are sent away on a desert island, they can have eight records, and then they give them, they can have a treat or a, a luxury. And uh, they're allowed one book as well on, to keep them company on a desert island. And the works of Shakespeare is a given, because otherwise everyone loves for Shakespeare. And the Bible is also a given. Uh, so it's in addition to those two. A little while ago, when I was, um, oh, a long time ago, when I was a student, uh, <laughs> I, uh, well, it was before the uh, revolution before the 89 revolution when a lot of uh, Eastern Europe was, was the, the sort of communist regimes were overthrown so we went, a group of us from a, a church I was belonging to at the time we went behind the Iron Curtain to Romania when Ceausescu, Nicolae Ceausescu was still uh, the dictator there and they saw our English papers and English number plates and there were three things on the border, it took us quite a long time to get through the border because there were three things that uh, they felt would be a threat the West bringing into uh, communist Romania. One was guns, one that were fueling some kind of insurrection, drugs, and the third, obviously, you've guessed it, given the title of the talk and my topic. But isn't that surprising, isn't it? Bibles. They were concerned that we were bringing in Bibles. Why, 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 why would you be concerned about just a, a, a pile of paper unless somehow you were conceding the fact there's extraordinary power to this particular pile of paper. <coughs> of, of all the things they could have banned or prevented us from bringing in, guns, drugs, Bibles. Didn't want Bibles. And that's interesting because, um, and I loved Lydia's talk last week, I really commend it. If you download it and uh, listen to it last week, as we were talking about you know, where we are now, where, how we've got to where we are as we try and reappraise and recognise reality. And, and Lydia had this sort of framework of of um, plausibility and desirability. Is, is, is Christianity plausible today? And, and frankly, is it desirable in the welter of choices that we have? And increasingly, I, I found, and with Alpha coming up, no doubt I'll find this again with the guests, that, um, that, that the Bible in particular is increasingly implausible. People are amazed that, that uh, or, or you know, it's kind of politely sort of surprised, that we, we devote so much time to focusing on Scripture, that we, we have a Bible reading. I haven't come here this evening and, and, and sort of offered, you know, uh, the, the sort of lead article from The Guardian or something from the Times Supplement. This is an interesting article. Why don't we look at this? Uh, they're all very interesting. I mean, do get your Sunday papers and have a read them. There's lots of fascinating things. But, but they don't kind of feed and inspire in the way that Scripture does. And we kind of got used to that. But people exploring the Christian faith, I've noticed on Alpha, you know, we, well, we, we dive straight in with Jesus. And we look at Jesus and people are oh, interesting that, that he died 
that he was raised to brand new life, that Christians center their faith on the miracle of the resurrection. People go, oh, okay. And then we, so that's sort of week one, week two, week three. And then the next session, traditionally in the Alpha Staple, has been to look at the Bible. And that is when I've noticed that suddenly, whoa, <laughs> hang on a second. I was kind of going okay on the Jesus stuff, but the Bible, you want me to take the Bible seriously? So, so much so that actually I think the advice from Alpha is to just sort of put that session on the Bible a little bit later on in the week when people have had a little bit more time to sort of warm up to some of this weirdness that Christians believe. The Bible? Surely not. In our, in our scientific age, again, if we think of the, the circle that Lydia took us on last week, the, the scientific revolution, we've discovered so much more about how the world works. It's not that big guy in the sky. I think we've, I think we've pulled the rug on miracles. They don't really happen, or we can explain them away in some other fashion that's, that's easy to prove scientifically. Or the Enlightenment period. We, we've, we've come of age. We, we can think and understand for ourselves. We don't need these stories. And so to hold to Scripture, inspired writing for us today, to centre our lives around it, spend half an hour a day reading Scripture as if it was a, an important meal to get us through the day, that's, that's surely quite implausible. <laughs> You're not expecting me to, to take that on board. One or two little book plugs at this stage, if I may, because I'd love to spend all evening uh, uh, kind of defending, not that it needs defending, but, but attempting a defence on the Bible. And it would be quicker, frankly, and probably more fruitful for you if I just recommend people who do a much better job than me. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And he's got an excellent chapter, several chapters, well, the whole book, but, an excellent, <laughs> but there's an excellent chapter on the Bible uh, in that one. Uh, how we can hold to the Bible today, particularly as he counters the, the scientific scepticism and the historical uh, veracity. Is it historically plausible? That it was written so long ago in a, in a very different age. It understood things very differently then. Really? Today? He, he's good on that. As is Amy or Ewing. Why trust the Bible? Uh, we were privileged to have Amy speak at our weekend away uh, uh, last January, almost a year ago now. Hey, it's, this talk is still on the website. Rattle down the, the thing and get the first of her talks from the weekend away outstanding on current research that at the time she was speaking hasn't been written up yet on um, names around Jesus' time and how they've done this amazing study on names at the time of Jesus which I won't explain it, you'll have to listen to the talk but they, they deepen our trust in the veracity of the gospel accounts. They make, this research is making the gospel accounts even more historically accurate and true than ever we thought they were. And we all, those of us who were there, we came out of that session where we went, wow, this Jesus, this is, this is really real. I believe this even more. Yeah, the Bible is, it stands historically. And actually many of the arguments that try and undermine the historical veracity, I speak as a history uh, graduate, many of the arguments that, that try and undermine the historical veracity of the Bible, frankly, they, they have very little evidence to back them up. Uh, Amy or you and my trust the Bible. And um, just less of a, a, a sort of defense of the Bible or an explanation of the Bible, but just a, a, a rejoicing in where we stand in God's great story is Philip Greenspade, a passion for God's story, discovering your place in God's strategic plan. This, when I read this book, it, it, was, it was like bits of me were just being watered and fed 
and held. Um, I, this was such a treat to read. So I really recommend that in terms of uh, our understanding of where we fit in God's great story. Um, so is it, is it um, scientifically plausible? Is it historically plausible? These are the questions that people have. And uh, uh, Keller and Emil Ewing in particular uh, do much to defend that. So not, I won't go into those arguments in, in great detail. Maybe what I'll just say on the cultural plausibility, we're in, we're in the sophisticated 21st Western world, Tim. This was written by people uh, in a different era, in a different part of the world so long ago. The culture was different. For example, men and women. Uh, their cultural setup, the way in which we surmise they understood the role of women then compared to now. How can you expect me to take the Bible seriously today when we know where we stand in terms of equality and human rights? Uh, I mean, it talks about slaves and slavery. It, it, was, it was fine for them. I understand it was fine for them, but we've kind of moved on. So is it culturally plausible? Keller is, is brilliant. Let me just rehearse one of the arguments he has there. Um, in, um, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, uh, Jesus talks a lot about the end of the world, about judgment, about the, the day is coming, when the, the, and it will be a, a terrifying and fearful day. And, and to our 21st century sort of sensitizes, we oh my goodness, you know, we don't really like judgment or, or you know, judgy people. If someone describes us as judgy, that's not a compliment. We, we don't really like... Then in chapter 14, it talks about... Um, uh, Mark describes Peter's denial of Jesus. And we know that later on, Jesus goes to reinstate Peter. And we, we like that. About, isn't that lovely about Jesus? That actually, though he takes the hit from Peter, he's let down by Peter. Later on, he's got that love, that capacity, that forgiveness to reinstate Peter. And Peter goes on to, to lead the church in Jerusalem. Oh, we like that. And Keller says, yeah, but if you were an Anglo-Saxon, reading that, you, back in the day, reading that, you'd love all the stuff on the end of the world. Because they were, they were kind of, doom and gloom was kind of their milieu. That's, they, you know, life was short and fickle. And, and so just to know what's going to happen at the end, to have someone tell me, this is what's going to happen. Here's some, here's some certainty. Oh, I like that. That's good. I, I can see a way out. And in Anglo-Saxon culture, if someone of the status of Peter, someone as high up, like he was in the inner three of Jesus' friends, someone that close to Jesus, if, if they denied they even knew you, let you down, betrayed you in that way, well, they deserve to be slain on the spot, off with his head, right there and then. Of course, that's just how you, that's how you meet out justice then. And that Jesus then goes and reinstates him. Oh, I don't like that. That sounds like, oh, I'm not following a woolly leader. What kind of leader do you call that? Do different cultures have different values? So one thing is in for one culture and out for another. So we shouldn't be surprised if in our culture there are elements of the Bible that we find implausible, that make us feel uncomfortable, that challenge us. After all, Paul says, all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Maybe it's that in this relationship with God through scripture, the relationship is looking to wrestle with us, to get under our skin, to make us wrestle with the issue, to, to work out what we really think. 
There are things that I'm sure our grandchildren's generation, again, look back on us and go, I can't believe they thought that or said that or acted in that way. You see, things about the environment. Can't believe. How on earth could they be so short-sighted? So cultures change and shift. We shouldn't be surprised if uh, sometimes we come across something in Scripture, in the Bible, that makes us feel uncomfortable or challenges us. It doesn't mean the Bible's implausible. Maybe it's our worldview. Maybe it's us. What kind of God would it be if he agreed with everything we thought? Two Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is God breathed. God breathed. This is a phrase that Paul has made up. It's not found anywhere else in Scripture or much in contemporary writing. He's taken two words, God and uh, neutos, the, the word for spirit, sort of God, yeah, God's breath, uh, God spirited, God released and inspired, um, and kind of hammed it together because he wants to to try and get us to see the uniqueness of Scripture. It it is unlike any other book, unlike any other literature. This collection of books speaks God's life, character, purpose into being in our lives. All Scripture is is God-breathed. That's why it carries its unique authority and power. When I was um, training at uh, uh, Curacy in, um, in uh, church in Bristol, we got to know someone who was a student at the time and then recently graduated called, she's called Ruth, she's now called Ruth Bushyager and uh, she actually now is ordained and leads a church in, in Dorking. But um, before that, after graduating, she worked for Gordon Brown, number 11, uh, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. And uh, she worked in the kind of communications office. And she basically described how, I mean, this is a massive machine. And she basically all communication boiled down to a red file and a blue file. And in the blue file was all the correspondence and all the communication that was of secondary or tertiary importance. It, it, didn't, it didn't relate directly to um, government policy at the time, Labour were in power. It didn't relate to, um, it, you know, a particular... Uh, just things from the cabinet or things of, of primary importance. Um, there were things that Gordon Brown probably believed in or probably felt and he was willing to trust his staff to write a letter in way of response on his behalf. They could sign it, he didn't need to see it and out it would go. But the red, that was a blue file. Blue file, secondary stuff. The red file though, that was important. Nothing could go out in Gordon Brown's name without him having read the correspondence himself. And in most cases, he would have signed it. Red file. Written by, crafted by his secretary team and then the massive team around. I don't think he wrote, he didn't write any of these things. It didn't come directly from him. But the red file was everything that he himself said, mediated through his team. Blue file was just um, the team. And it sort of, it would represent what Gordon Brown probably thought. So, so these books here, these are they're all really good. I mean, Keller and Amy, Philip Grainstone, but they're, they're blue file. They're blue file. They don't come directly. These don't purport to be inspired by God or, or, or directly or inspired by the scripture. They're just, they help us in order to get to know him. But 
But this here, this is red fire. This is God's carrying people along, different authors at different times, with his words to write and record in such a way that human beings down the ages for all time, this is the mystery of Holy Scripture, can engage with God, can hear him speak to them, can know that he is breathing his life into them. All scripture, God breathed, red file stuff, directly from God through, the, through human agency. All well and good, sort of plausibility of, of scripture um, that God speaks to us. But frankly, on that, on that framework, it doesn't sound particularly desirable. Sort of, I mean, so far you've been sitting there very sweetly. It's all a bit dull. I want to argue that, that this is the most desirable thing, thing that we can hold in our hands when it comes to our relationship with God. The most tangible, measurable, material thing. This is a love letter. This is God's breath, God's breathed love letter to you, to me. And maybe, maybe we shouldn't focus so much on scripture as on the author. Because then we'll, we'll desire to fall in love with what the author wants to say. Uh, I love the story I heard uh, recently of um, a, a student. She was an English student. And she was set an essay by her tutor uh, to, to read up various books on a, on a particular playwright. And, um, and then to write an essay on on, uh, on his works. And so she got one or two of the things out of the library, she started to read the first one, and it, it was just really dense. She just, you know, she just couldn't get into it. So she said, I'll, put that I'll try another one. So she tried another one. She tried the same thing. Just really couldn't get behind the mind of the playwright, couldn't understand what he was going on and what it was about. Or, and so you know, the essay deadline was dooming and she, looming, and she couldn't sort of get her head around. So in a little bit of a panic, she went to her tutor. She said, look, I'm, I'm really wrestling with this essay. I, I, can't, I just can't get inside the book. I'm trying to. You know, I just don't get what he's on about. And the tutor was, was quite canny. Uh, and I just said, look, tell you what, forget, forget about the essay. Don't worry about the essay. But I've got a uh, sort of drinks gallery, a few people uh, around my rooms um, on Friday night. Can you come? I said, well, Okay, if you've let me off the essay, the least I'll do is uh, say yes then. But so she goes along, and um, her tutor just introduced her to various people, including this sort of fairly nondescript guy. Uh, he's wearing a kind of slightly threadbare jacket, with, you know, with those sort of leather patches on the elbows, you know, and uh, he's sort of scruffy hair, and he, he looked very unsupposing. Um, but they got in conversation, and almost immediately she was struck by just how engaging he was in conversation. It seemed like every topic they touched on, whatever it was, current affairs, sport, media, politics, he, he just lit fires in her. It kind of sparked her imagination. It, found like, it felt like she had so many things to, to explore with him by way of conversation. Like, several hours went past, and it, it felt like just minutes. She was captivated, almost entranced by him. At the end of the evening, she went to her tutor, and she said, um, that, that guy you introduced me to, um, who, who was that? And the tutor said, that's the playwright who wrote the plays that I'm asking you to do the essay on. Well, 
Well, she, now that she'd met the playwright, now that she'd met the author of the play, she couldn't wait to go back and reread the works. And suddenly, having met the author, the works came alive. Now that she knew the mind and the person and the personality behind the works, suddenly these dense works came alive. All of that to say that I wonder if your view of the Bible is, is clouded by your view of God. If God is sort of rather distant, invisible, remote, guess what? You'll probably find that Scripture becomes slightly distant, nonsensical, a bit remote, a bit detached. But if your view of God, through Song of Solomon, for example, is of a lover who chases you, who, who will run after you, a shepherd who will leave 99 sheep to go and get the one, of a father waiting on the doorstep for his errant son to come to hug him and bring him home. If that's your view of God, of a God who loves you, who, who will challenge you because he wants you to grow, he wants to mature you, to see you flourish in life, if that's your view of God, then I wonder how you'll approach reading his letter to you. The thing is, that's, that's quite a challenge for us in our day and age, particularly if we're slightly bound by the idea that this is a book, yet another book. This is what David Jackman says. It's a relatively long quote, but I think it's, it's, it's worth me reading it to you. Listen to what he says. What makes Bible reading so challenging is the personal address of the voice of God to which we need to tune in and listen for that is how its authority and truth are conveyed. The Bible is not a religious treasury of memorable quotations or purple passages to be used for our delectation or to select what we want out of them. It is the urgent, conversational voice of the living God, inviting us into relationship, probing our innermost thoughts and values, prompting us to stop and reflect to consider our ways, to learn to live in the light of eternity. Our danger is that because all this is in book form for us, printed and bound like any other on our shelves, we treat it merely as we would any other book. We pick it up, look at it, use it even for our comfort or inspiration, but we do not listen long enough or hard enough to meet the person who is speaking through its pages or to enter the relationship of love to which we are being invited. We need to let the Bible speak for itself, for what Scripture is saying, God is saying. The challenge is to read Scripture, God's love letter to us, truth and beauty in a book, so that we we hear God. We need to read it so that we listen to God through the pages. We need to allow enough time. It's not so much me getting through my Bible reading as my Bible reading getting through me. To hear God as he converses with us. To read maybe just a, 
a line, even just a word sometimes, and to let that sit in your mind as you wrestle to understand it, in your heart as you work out what you feel. What emotions does that stir? What responses can I feel? What does it do in my gut? And as God, through Scripture, challenges your will, the way in which you make decisions, you prioritise your life from the moment you get up tomorrow morning. How will I spend my time or my money? Who will I spend time with? What will I do with the resources I have at my disposal? The, the home that I have or the space that I occupy? How will I just administer the, the human ecology that is my space and my life and my, my sort of bubble, my influence? All those decisions shaped by the plumb line of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's God's love letter so that we can fall in love with him over and over and over again. Permit me a, a bit of self-indulgence, but when Joe and I were going out, which is what we used to do, but I know you date today, but we, back when we were old enough that we, we went out. I don't know where, we just went out. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, for a while, we had a distance relationship. Joe was working in Birmingham, and I was training to, to teach um, in Hull. And so, um, this was before phones, well, mo- I mean mobile, we had phones. <laughs> mobile phones, yeah. not bad old. <laughs> Alexander Bell, I've got a good idea. We should make this thing. So we'd write letters. How quaint. I used to love it. So we got more uh, mail, snail mail then. But this was even before email, really. Um, can you imagine? Um, and uh, so I could get letters. These are letters that come in, oh, tinsel, tinsel. <laughs> But, but Joe's, you see, Joe's handwriting, just distinct. Don't, immediately I recognise it, just that, oh, and that, that letter stands out. And I think, so I hope the first, no, I'll save the best of last. I'll open the other stuff, all the boring ones, bills, bills, bills. <laughs> Find a place, sit down, set down, Joe's. Getting it out, just, it, even just her handwriting. There was something about just her handwriting. It's something like she's taken the time to write, you know, double sides, how many kisses, yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> just points up I'm not just I mean it's it's ink on a paper but it's not just ink on a paper is it I'm literally reading between the lines I, I read what Joe says but I'm I'm picturing her as she tells that story as she's giggling about something she's writing or as she's sharing something of her heart I'm, I'm kind of almost picturing the, the expression on her face in fact don't you do this when you get a card or a note from someone that you know isn't it don't you get their voice reading it in your head yeah, they come alive in you. They speak in your life. All scripture is God-breathed. It's God's love letter. It's his voice wanting to amplify in your life, in your head and your heart and your soul. So that you will leave your unsatisfying lives of sin and waywardness that everything you do and say would conform to his pattern and 
his will and his purposes. D.L. Moody, the evangelist. The Bible is not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. Information, as we read it, by the work of the Spirit, is revelation, as God shows something of himself to us, as he speaks in our lives, which leads to reformation, a change of life. Life with a renewed purpose, uh, maybe a slightly different sense of direction, different priorities that mirror the priorities of heaven as we live them out on earth. Information, revelation, reformation. Bing. <laughs> yes, but how? Final thing, I'm coming to land. Yes, but how? And actually, Johnny, I thought it was great. Chat to Johnny after, and others as well. If you're kind of, maybe you've just slightly fallen out of a regular pattern of Bible reading, or maybe you've never seriously considered um, Bible reading, this is one of the surest ways in which you can grow in your knowledge and love of God himself. Uh, commentaries are, are great, and all the sort of apps and stuff we have on our phones these days, they're, they're brilliant, but they're kind of blue file, not red file. Um, Podcasts are fantastic. I worry sometimes that we are feeding on blue file stuff and replacing a priority for red file reading and digesting. Time, time in scripture itself. Then listen to the commentaries or the podcasts and the reading plans, all of which are, are useful. But it's scripture that is God-breathed where his voice will soak into our lives. Three questions. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? That's a framework. Any kind of life group, Bible study, your own personal study, what does it say? What does it actually say? Let's, let's get to know what Scripture actually says. Again, I, I, I don't mean to be dismissive, but on, on Alpha, often um, uh, in conversation, people say, well, you can't believe what the Bible says. I said, well, can you give me an example? Well, you know, all the contradictions. Yeah, thank you. Could you give me an example? Well, you know, just the things where it, it just doesn't make sense. Um, for example, what does it actually say? Do we know what Scripture says in terms of its big meta-narratives, its overarching themes, as well as some um, Particular words of Jesus, for example, or the instructions in the epistles here that uh, echo and back up some of the patterns from the Old Testament. What does Scripture say? And again, commentaries and so on will help us if they're words or ideas or idioms or concepts that are a bit strange to our modern ears. Then what does it mean? Here's a little thing to help just with getting the most out of the Bible. We really understand Scripture. Meaning then and meaning now. What did it mean to those people back there, back then? When, when Paul is writing to Timothy, for example, where, where is Timothy? What's he doing? Who's he ministering to? What's his context and his situation? What are the challenges that he's facing? We can surmise that from some of the things. Don't let people look down on you because you're a youth. So there's a kind of ages culture and he's a young leader there are things he's wrestling with he's got issues with his health we know some of the context he was in Ephesus so we know some of the stuff about it. so what were the issues 
that's, that were flying around those people back there, back then. But, but also, we need to come to, we're reading it today in the 21st century. What are the issues that are swirling around us as we read? What are the sort of cultural lenses that will, will skew the way in which we truly hear God speak? It's quite easy actually sometimes to distance yourself and you can look objectively on the 1st century or the 5th century BC and actually it can be quite hard to work out what's contorting our worldview in our uh, Western liberal democracy, in our, within our free market economics, on the brink of Brexit. What are the things, that, the fears that are, are skewing the way in which we see ourselves and God and reality? That's why we, we need, if you like, this, this sort of... Um, canon of scripture, this plumb line of scripture that spoke then and speaks now. So what did it mean to them there then, as I read it? And, and what, therefore, is the Spirit of God, the timeless, eternal Spirit of God, saying to us here now? And where they accord and line up, God speaks. God makes sense. Kind of... Um, previous church warden here and one of her dictums was truth makes sense truth makes sense it does truth will tumble out if we do that little exegetical work of of digging out what it meant then and the hermeneutics of what it means today to us and finally so what what does that mean for me how am I going to live differently from what I've learned about God in relation to me what I've learned about myself in relation to God and in relation to others. How will I live differently as a result? What will I think differently? How will I, how will I manage my emotions and responses as a result of what I've read? What will I decide to do, an act of will, that's different as a result of what I'm reading and feeding on in Scripture? All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that all God's people may be thoroughly (coughs) equipped for every good work. Amen. Let's pause for a moment. I've had a sense that's been growing really all through the days I've been delivering this message that that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has shown us and revealed to us what he's like in Jesus Jesus came to show us the Father and the heart of the Father he's he's calling us to kind of renew our if I can put it like this our love affair with him To, to, to fall in love or re-fall in love or commit to fall even deeper in love 
with him. And I'm not, I don't mean here, the, the sort of equal sense I've had, not the kind of schmaltzy Hollywood type love. I'm not talking about sort of a, a, a kind of soppy romantic love. But in fact, this scripture here, it's, it teaches, that's good. Then it rebukes, corrects, and trains. I don't know about you, but if I go into serious training for something, it hurts. I did a bike ride recently. I, if I was going on the bike, I, I wasn't just sort of idly pedaling on a bike. I was pedaling until my lactic acid filled my legs. It hurt. My body was saying, I don't want to do this. My body was resisting the training. I don't want to do this, but it was because of the pain of the training that I was able to complete the ride. Any training, whatever training hurts. All scriptures, God breathed to hurt us into good. That's a sign of love. God wants to grow us and train us, mature us in, in such a wonderful fatherly way. Because he cares for us. He believes in us. He sees the potential and he wants you to realise it. And as we engage with him through scripture, he, he will do that. Sometimes he'll correct us. Sometimes he'll train us in our heavy heart. Sometimes he'll rebuke us. Man, you're out of order there. You've got that wrong. Through scripture, the spirit convicts us. And all the while he's teaching us so that we fall deeper and deeper and deeper in love with him, the source of all life. I'm gonna be bold and just, I'm gonna, just as we sit here, maybe with heads bowed, if that's you, and you, you want a fresh commitment to encounter truth through the book, through reading this love letter of God, would you, would you stand where you are?